And if you would, turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to be finishing up 1 John today. This will be the last sermon on 1 John. Um, before we get started, though, we have uh, some guests with us uh, this morning that I want to uh, point out. We are blessed to have Steve and Arlene Richardson with us. If you guys could stand, Steve and Arlene. Steve and Arlene. Uh, Steve is the president of Pioneers, and um, we have been supporting for 20 years, you said? Over 20 years? About 20 years? He's been a part of our church um, distantly across the country, but um, we, are, we are blessed to have him this morning. If you would, uh, after church is over, just say hi and tell him thank, thank him for all the work that they both are doing, um, and uh, thank you guys for being with us this, this morning. So, 1 John 5.21, if you would, read with me. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. As a verse this morning we're going to be preaching on. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, I pray, uh, Lord, that you are with me this morning, um, that your words are heard this morning, Lord, as we go through your scriptures. God, that we see the importance of true worship of you, Lord, and, and the danger and, and destruction idolatrous worship brings, Lord. God, I pray that you're with us this morning as we, we look at Scripture as a whole. We take a, a kind of a wide-angled look, Lord, to see where First John fits in the Scripture as a whole, Lord, that you help our minds just, just follow along and see the, the meta-narrative, the, the big story, the large story of Scripture, Lord, and where First John fits into that and how it applies to our life, Lord. That's our goal this morning, Lord. I pray that you're with us. Open our hearts to what you have to say, Lord, this morning. Be with us in your Son's name. Amen. As we've been going through 1 John, and I'm sure we have read through 1 John, and I'm sure last week you read through 1 John, and especially chapter 5, you got to the very last verse, verse 21, and it kind of is a very odd ending to 1 John. I would say at least for two reasons this is an odd ending. First, it's not a typical closing to a letter that you, you would see in any letter, not, not, and inc- that includes biblical letters, biblical epistles. Usually you see at the end of like a Pauline letter or epistle, him saying, tell so-and-so hi, um, I want to finish by saying this, or peace and grace to you. Instead, John just gives a final charge. Keep yourselves from idols. The second reason why this is somewhat of an interesting, odd ending is there idolatry is not mentioned anywhere else in first john this is it it seems almost disconnected from the letter as a whole where does idolatry come in is this just a final charge is this just an afterthought by john i better write keep yourself from idols my goal today in this sermon and um i've been excited to preach this sermon all week and um actually nervous, too, because I feel like it's a lofty goal. My goal this morning is to show how idolatry is connected to all of 1 John, and not just to all of 1 John, but idolatry really connects 1 John to the rest of Scripture. So that's my goal. We are going to be covering a lot of Scripture this morning. I would encourage you, if you want to try to stay with me as, as, as I go from Scripture to Scripture, please do that. But if not, all of it should be on the board or the projector, the screen. Um, and so it might be small print, um, but that's all right. 
Uh, I have cheat. I have it in my notes. I'm not flipping. So, um, but the three points that I'm going to be going over, the three points of the sermon this morning, will help you and and help me stay on track in the thought process. So here are the three points. Idolatry brings spiritual death. Idolatry brings spiritual death. That's my first point. The second point is this. God promises spiritual life. God promises spiritual life. And the third point is this. Spiritual life produces fruit. Spiritual life produces fruit. So let me start with the first point this morning. Idolatry brings spiritual death. And before we even get going, I really want to define idolatry. This is my own definition of what I see in Scripture and and just with pastoral uh, pastors that I, I trust and love, um, a mixture of that. And this is the definition of idolatry that I have. Anything you worship, anything you worship or trust in for ultimate security and or joy other than the one true God. Anything you worship or trust in for ultimate security and joy other than the one true God is idolatrous worship. So turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 6, verse 9. Again, this will be on the, the screen if you want to just look at the screen. I wish I had more time to go over the whole entire chapter. Isaiah 6 is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, but I'm going to focus on two verses in Isaiah 6, and the verses are cha- verse 9 and 10. But I do want to give the context, so let me go through the chapter very quickly. It's a time of political unrest in Israel. Isaiah the prophet has this vision in the temple, this vision of God. And we're probably familiar with this vision. It says uh, that, that he sees God sitting on his throne, high and lifted up with his train of his robe. God's robe filled the temple. And verse 2 says, Above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And then in verse 6 it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had, had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In other words, Isaiah, you are forgiven. Your sins are atoned for. You are cleansed from your unrighteousness. And then verse 8, it says this, and and I heard, this is Isaiah saying, I heard uh, a voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send? And who will go for us? God is saying with Isaiah there in the audience, who will speak for me to Israel? And, And then Isaiah, then I said, here I am, send me. In other words, Isaiah is saying, I will speak for you, God. I will be your prophet to Israel. That's the context. We get to verse 9 and 10. And I just want to say, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 are extremely important verses. These two verses are quoted at least least six times in the gospel and and the the book of Acts. It's quoted once in, in Romans. Jesus and Paul point back to this prophecy. It's prophesying the, and showing the spiritual deadness of the people they're talking about. And this is what it says in verse 9. And he said, Go and say to this people, to Judah, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. 
in verse 10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and, their, and, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, God tells Isaiah, go and prophesy to Judah. Go and prophesy to my people, but they will not hear you because they have ears that cannot hear. They have eyes that cannot see. Can you imagine this calling? That God comes to you and says, go prophesy, go preach, go proclaim the good news to a people, uh, but know this, they won't listen to you. They are not going to listen. In fact, your preaching is just going to harden their hearts. And look at verse 11. Then I, this is Isaiah, he said, how long, O Lord? In other words, how long must I do this? This is an impossible calling. And he said, until cities lay waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. In other words, until Judah is laid waste without inhabitants, when the Lord removes the people away, really until Judah is exiled out of the promised land. It's exactly what happened years after this prophecy was preached. Babylon came in and destroyed Judah and took the people, conquered them, and took them to Babylon. This prophecy was actually prophesied hundreds of years before Isaiah 6. It's actually Deuteronomy 4, verse 25. Moses prophesies the same thing. It says this in Deuteronomy 4, verse 25. It will be on the screen. When, you, when your father's children and children's children, in other words, Israel, who is going into the promised land, this is way before Isaiah, you're going to have children, and, and they're going to have children, and they're going to have children. In other words, generations from now, generations and generations and generations from now, when they have grown old in the land, if you act corrupt by, car, by making a carved image in the form of anything, in other words, idolatry, And by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. That sounds familiar, right? Isaiah 6, laid waste. Verse 27 says, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. Again, Isaiah 6, this exile that's going to happen. And you will be left few in numbers among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Verse 28, and there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the works of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. It's interesting. It's very familiar, very similar to, to Isaiah 6's prophecy. It's, a, it's the same type of prophecy. It's prophesying a future exile because of idolatry. But look at verse 28. Who can't hear or see in verse 28? The idols. Right? These false gods of wood and stone neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. It's actually throughout all of Scripture, Old and New Testament is the description of idols of false gods. 
There's just a couple examples. Let me give you some. Psalms 115.5, they, they have mouths, these idols, but they do not speak eyes, but do not see. Psalms 135.16 says, they have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. Revelations, New Testament 9.20 says, worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and, and stone and wood, which cannot see nor hear nor walk. Idols, false gods, can't see, hear, walk, smell, eat. In other words, idols are lifeless. Idols are dead. And this is always in comparison to the true living God who sees and hears and and who has the power to act. Idols are lifeless. But here's what's interesting. You get to Isaiah 6 those two important verses that are so foundational to the New Testament, verses 9 and 10, is very, very similar or familiar or similar to, to the passages that are prophesying this exile, but it's not the idols who cannot hear or see. It's Judah. It's God's people. Right? Isaiah 6, 9 says, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. In other words, you have ears, but you can't hear. You you have eyes, but you can't see. Verses 9 and 10 are saying, Judah is physically alive with ears and eyes, but spiritually completely dead. Just like their idols. Can't hear or see. So what's the correlation between idolatry and spiritual death? Well, look at Psalms 115.1. 115.1. should be on the board. Psalms 115.1. It says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. In verse 2, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in heaven, and he does all that he pleases. In other words, our God acts. And he does what he pleases. Then verse 4, there's this comparison. They're idols, right? The gods of the nations, in other words. All these fake gods, right? There's this comparison. Verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have, they have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. In other words, these false gods are are dead. They're lifeless, not alive, cannot speak, cannot see, cannot hear, cannot smell, and do not act. Completely lifeless. But the key verse is verse 8. Verse 8 says this, Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Those that make and trust these gods become like them. Those that worship dead, false, powerless gods become like them, completely spiritually dead. Idolatry brings death. It brings the inability to hear. It brings the inability to see. 
And this is why Isaiah 6 says the people of of Judah have ears but cannot hear. They have eyes but cannot see. They became like the idols they worshipped. And actually, Isaiah 44 makes this very, very clear. I love the chapter, Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20 are very sarcastic. That may be why I like it. I don't know. Um, They're very sarcastic, almost humorous. I don't have time to go over the whole entire chapter. I would love to, but, but I want to look at verse 16. So Isaiah 44, verse 16. Again, this should be on the board. Verse 16 says this. Half of it, the it, the antecedent to it is a log. Right? Half of a log. Okay? Half of it, he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the, seen the fire. In other words, a man cuts a log in half and he throws it and makes a fire out of it and he, he, he warms himself. He cooks his meat. Verse 17. The rest of it, the other half of the log, he makes it into a god, his idol. And he falls down to worship, or falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, you are my god. The, the point of, uh, that Isaiah is making in Isaiah 44 is this is stupid. Amen. And I, I tell my kids all the time, do not say that word stupid. But I say, you know what, there's sometimes it's appropriate to say it. This is stupid. That's the point. Verse 18, look, this is important. They, and the they, the antecedent today is people that are making and worshiping these idols. They know not... Nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. The worshiper, the makers of these idols, they cannot see, they cannot hear, they have no understanding, they are completely spiritually dead. The hearts are hardened, and that's because idolatry False worship, starting in the garden, idolatry brings spiritual death. But here's the good news. God promises spiritual life. God promises life. That's my second point. God promises life. If you would, turn to Jeremiah 31, 31, or look at it on the screen. Jeremiah 31, 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming. This is a prophecy that, that there is a day that is coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I, I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. In this passage in Isaiah, or Jeremiah 31, God is promising a new covenant Because Israel broke the old covenant. Here's an important question. How and when did Israel break the old covenant? Well, think about Exodus 32. Israel made a golden calf. Right? They made an idol and they started worshiping it. And what was happening while they were making this golden calf? Moses was on the mountain with God. And God gives Moses these two tablets with ten commandments. And the first two commandments are, don't do that. Don't worship any other God. Don't make an image. 
Moses comes down the mountain and he sees Israel not only worshiping this golden calf, but in all types of ugly sin, drunkenness, orgies. He takes the two stone tablets and throws them down. Right? These, these tablets that, that have God's law written on them. He breaks them. When did Israel break the old covenant? Right from the beginning. Israel broke the covenant with idolatrous worship, and from that point on, Israel continued to fall into idolatry over and over and over and over and over again throughout the whole Old Testament. What was the result? Spiritual death. Isaiah 6, God, God says to his people, you have eyes, but you are blind. You have ears, but you cannot hear. Israel's idolatry led to spiritual death because they became like what they worshipped. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Well, what's the new covenant? Look at verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In other words, God's going to restore his people. How? We'll look at verse 33. I will. Right? You see that word over and those two words over and over again? I will. I will. I will. Right? I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. Listen, instead of writing the law on two tablets— so they can see the two tablets. God promises in the new, the, the new covenant, I'm going to write it on their hearts. The new covenant, the law is going to be written on their hearts. And, and this is promised in more than one places. Deuteronomy, again, during the time of Moses, Deuteronomy 36 says this, And the Lord, the Lord your God, will circumcise your hearts. And this is talking about the future. This is going to happen one day, Israel. The Lord your God is going to circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live, have spiritual life. Deuteronomy promises that Israel is going to worship idols and they're going to become spiritually dead. And then after that, in the distant future, there will be a time when God circumcises their hearts so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The same promise that's found in Deuteronomy 31, I will write it on their hearts. They'll have, in other words, a desire to obey me. This is what the new covenant is going to accomplish according to the old covenant, the Old Testament. A love for God, a desire to obey him through that love of God and life that you may live. Now turn with me to Ezekiel 36, verse 16. I need to speed up. we got a lot to cover. Isaiah, or Ezekiel 36, verse 16. Again, you can just look it on the board. In verse 16, Isaiah 36. I keep saying Isaiah. Sorry, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, verse 16. Did I say that right this time? Okay, I'm getting nods. How do you know? Ezekiel 36, verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel, Son of man, 
When the house of Israel lived in their land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds, and, and the way they defiled it, it was through idolatry. You want to know what God thinks of idolatry? Look at the second part of verse 17. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. God makes it clear what he thinks about idolatry. It's so ugly, it's embarrassing to read it from the pulpit. And I want to remind you, because this is not just worshiping little things that are supposedly God. Idolatry led Israel, and it leads the nations too, in all types of satanic practices. Orgies, drunkenness, prostitution, child sacrifices. And you better believe adult, or, uh, abortion is fit in there in our country. Mutilation of the flesh. Listen, God hates idolatry. And it's because it brings death to people. Look at verse 18. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dis- dispersed through the countries, right? This is exi- the exile that was, was uh, talked about in, in Jeremiah and Deuteronomy. This is the punishment for idolatry. Skip down to verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Ezekiel, this is why I want you to prophesy to Israel. Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. In other words, I am done with you, Israel, dragging my name through the mud. I am going to act. I want you to hear the heart of God. You skip down to verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I mean, when I read this, this, this verse that says, you know, I'm tired of you dragging my name through the mud. I'm about to act. You know what I automatically think? Judgment. God's about to just wipe Israel off the face of the earth and start over. But you know what we get in verse 24 and 25? Grace. Love. God's action is grace and mercy. Look, God is a God that's completely just, but he's also a God that's completely merciful and gracious, and that's through the Old and New Testament. God is about to act because they have profaned his name, and he's tired of his name being dragged through the mud. And so this is what it says, verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you all the countries and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, I, and give you a, you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. I want you to notice the two words that are used over and over again in Ezekiel. I will. I will. I will. I will. I will act. Just like Jeremiah 31, God is going to act. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you from all your idols. I will clean, clean, or cleanse you. 
Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I'll put, put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God is being clear. He is the one that's going to act. Therefore, all the glory goes to God. I mean, look at verse 22 again. That's what it says. Thus says the Lord, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. I will be glorified. Therefore, I am going to act. Now look at verse, or chapter 37. Chapter 37, verse 1 in Ezekiel. Verse 1 says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me around among them, and behold, there are very many on the surface of this valley, and behold, they were very dry. Why don't you just picture this? Ezekiel is having a vision. This is not a real valley with real bones. He's having a vision Right, that's real to him. God's given him this dream or vision. And he takes him to this valley, and it's full of human bones. And they were very dry. I don't know about you, but I don't know if you can get more dead than very dry bones. Is that right, Dave? I see you shaking your head. We have a doctor, so the, just making sure. Very dry bones, verse 3. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? You think about that question, Dave, can these bones live? No. Right? There's no doctor, there's no medication, there's no procedure, there's no surgery, there's no treatment that can bring dry bones to life. It's impossible. Right? It's impossible, at least by human effort. Look at verse 3. Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, he says, I answered, Oh, Lord, you know. In other words, all things are possible with you, God. Right? If you want them to live, they can live. You know. Right? Ezekiel has way more faith. I would just said, no, they can't. They're bones. Look at verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now think about that for a second. Ezekiel is told to speak to dry bones and tell them to hear. Say to them, oh, dry bones, right? They call them by name, which is ironic enough. Hear the word of the Lord. Can dry bones hear? I mean, I don't, I've seen questions on your face. Dave, can dry bones hear? <laughs> no. They can't. Isn't this very similar to Isaiah's calling? Isaiah was called to prophesy to Israel who can't hear, who can't see, who's completely spiritually dead like dry bones. Ezekiel was called in this vision to speak, to prophesy, to proclaim to bones. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. This is what I want you to say to these bones, Ezekiel. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, 
and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, I am going to give you life, bones. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I, um, so I, prophesied as I was commanded. And as I, was pro- as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I, I looked, and behold, there was sinews on them, and, and the flesh um, came upon them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. Now there's a play on words here that's very important that we don't see in English. In Hebrew, the word for wind, breath, and spirit are all the same word in Hebrew. It's a play on words that that God is using uh, through Ezekiel to preach, to teach, proclaim to these bones, right? This breath, the four winds, the breath that breathe into the slain, that brings life. That's the same word, right? Verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath, or the spirit, or the wind, came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet in exceedingly great army. Wow. What's this all mean? Well, look at verse 11. God explains it. Then he said to me, Son of man, Ezekiel, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, uh, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. In other words, these bones are an analogy. This dream you're having, Ezekiel, is an analogy. It's an analogy of the deadness of Israel. God was promising one day he was going to bring life to Israel. Idolatry brought death. God is promising he is going to bring life. Look at verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. In other words, God promises life to Israel. Again, our two points, idolatrous worship, false worship, brings spiritual death. God promises miraculous spiritual life. That leads to the last point of the sermon this morning. Spiritual life produces fruit. Spiritual life produces fruit. Now, if you would, turn with me to the New Testament, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. You're probably familiar with this passage. If you get there, you see what it is. It's a passage that we've gone over and over a couple times, at least two times since we've been in 1 John, and that's because it's closely related to 1 John. Remember, John is the author of the Gospel of John, and he's the author of 1 John. So I hope you don't mind that we go over it again, because I think the context of Old Testament idolatry and this promise of spiritual life, right, spiritual deadness because of idolatry and this promise of spiritual life, 
will bring a clearer meaning to this passage. I think you'll have a better understanding after we go through this passage one more time. Remember, idolatry, false worship, brings blindness, the inability to hear, the inability for hearts to understand. That's what the Old Testament says. Idolatry brings spiritual death. Now look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and, and for what we need to know is he was an expert of the Old Testament. A lot of Pharisees supposedly had the whole Old Testament memorized. I mean, an expert of the Old Testament. He probably came at night because he didn't want people to see him associated with Jesus. And this tells me that he's seriously interested into hearing what Jesus has to say. He's not trying to trick Jesus like the other Pharisees are doing. Look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Right? Again, I think this is very genuine. Nicodemus has seen the miracles. Right? These ridiculous miracles. You want to talk about blindness. Think of the Pharisees and Israel that saw this, these ridiculous miracles that Jesus was doing in front of everyone, healing whole cities. And they say, you're from Satan. Nicodemus has seen these miracles. He knows Jesus is from God, and he has a question. Well, Jesus reads his mind, anticipates his question, and here's what the question you can read into this. It's something like this. What do I need to do to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus, what do I need to do to be a true Israelite? What, what, what must I do to be in fellowship with God? In other words, what must I do to be saved? Jesus reads his mind, look at verse 3, and Jesus said to him, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, there's absolutely nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. You must be born again. You need spiritual life. It's interesting what Jesus says, though, right? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No less enter the kingdom of God. right? No less be a part of the kingdom of God. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless one is born again. Does that sound familiar? Isaiah 6, 9. They have eyes, but cannot see. They keep on seeing, in other words. They're, they're physically alive, but do not perceive Right? Man's idolatry, man's false worship has brought spiritual death and dullness to the point that one can't even see the kingdom of God without life. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Most commentators, if you read about this, they say that Nicodemus was confused and wasn't following along. He was thinking of physical things, not spiritual things. I really don't think Nicodemus was confused, in my opinion. He was very well-versed in rabbinical teaching, which always used analogies. You just look at the Old Testament, the Valley of the Bones. Right? I mean, these, these were analogies. He got analogies. He knew Jesus was using an analogy. He understood what Jesus was saying to a point. He was following along with the analogy. He was still thinking, what must I do to be born again? What works? And Jesus said to him, right, is saying, 
Spiritual birth is like your physical birth, Nicodemus. This is the analogy. Spiritual birth is like your physical birth. And I want you to think about your physical birth for a second. What did you do to be born? Your physical birth. Absolutely nothing. You're passive in that process. It happened to you. You didn't get to pick when, where, or to whom you were born. You did absolutely nothing. Birth happens to you, and that's the point. That's Jesus' point. And Nicodemus, I think, got it. I mean, a, a Pharisee, a person that is self-righteous, a legalist, who was thinking, I need to work to gain God's favor. What must I do? And Jesus said, you must be born again. And he goes, well, does that mean I can crawl into my mother's womb or something? Like, what can I do? Nothing. There's nothing you can do to be born again. No works. Right? Remember what God said to Jeremiah and Ezekiel over and over and over again. God said, I will. I will. I will. I will. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Does that sound familiar? Unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Think of Ezekiel 36, 25. It said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from your idols I will cleanse you. Again, idolatry brought death and uncleanness. God is saying, I'm going to clean you. And then verse 26 says, I will, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, right? Life. Verse 27, and I will, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statue and be careful to obey my rules. Look at John 3, 5 again. Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Then verse 7, he says, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. You know what that is? Nicodemus, you know the Old Testament. You know Ezekiel. You should know this. There's nothing you can do. You must be born again. You should know that Ezekiel says you need spiritual life. Then Jesus uses another analogy in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. It's a play on words here. In Greek, wind and spirit are the same words, pneuma. Just like Ezekiel, where, where the wind and the breath and the spirit, they're all the, the, the same word. The wind and the breath brings life. Look at verse 8. The wind, again, our spirit, same word. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. In other words, you never see the wind. What do you see when the wind's blowing? We've talked about this before. What do you see? The effects you look outside and you see a windy day, what are you seeing? You're not seeing the wind. You're seeing the effects of the wind. You're seeing leaves moving. Right? You're seeing flags moving. You see windmills spinning. You hear the sound, but you don't see the wind. Right? You only see the effects. Verse 8, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
Listen, when you share the gospel with someone, you don't see the Spirit working on that person's heart. You don't see the Spirit changing that person's heart. What do you see? The effects of a changed heart. You see faith and belief. You see a desire for God. You see a love for God that leads to a desire to follow Him and obey Him. That's what the Gospel of John chapter 3 is all about. It's pointing back to these prophecies. So what does this all have to do with 1 John? If you would turn with me to 1 John chapter 5 verse 13. First John 5, chapter 5, verse 13. Remember, this is like John's postscript, the ending, the concluding paragraph. And in verse 13, he really tells us why he wrote 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says this, I write these sayings in 1 John. I write 1 John, in other words. I write these sayings to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, I write these sayings to believers, to the church, that you may know you have eternal life. In other words, I wrote 1 John so that the believers that read 1 John may know that they have life. 1 John is all about the evidence of spiritual life. 1 John's all about the effects of being born again. When someone is born again, what do we see? We don't see the Spirit. You don't see the Spirit. You don't see the Spirit working on that person's hearts. What do you see? You see the effects of a changed heart. And there's three main effects that John has been going over, and we've been in this for months now. The three effects are belief in the biblical Jesus, love for God, and love for others. Belief in Jesus, the biblical Jesus, is, is evidence of the new birth. Right? We talked about this. 1 John 5, verse 1. It's an important verse. 1 John 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, right? The biblical Jesus. Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In other words, new birth causes belief. Everyone who believes is present tense in Greek. Everyone who, who presently believes has been born of God. That's perfect tense. Perfect tense is something that happens in the past that affects the present. Greek is very precise, and John is clearly saying in this verse that new birth, the new birth has caused belief. Therefore, belief is evidence of the new birth. Chapter 5, verse 12 says, whoever has the son of man, or sorry, whoever has the son has life, spiritual life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life, spiritually dead. Second evidence of new birth is love for God, which leads to obeying. Which leads to obeying. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God, no one with spiritual life, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. 1 John 5.18 We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. 1 John 5.2 
By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, new birth brings a desire, a love for God, and a love for God, this desire, is a desire to keep his commandments, to obey God. It's evidence of new birth. Remember what Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Obedience is evidence, not perfection. John's very clear on that. We will sin, but a desire to be obedient, a desire to repent from that sin, a desire to to ask for forgiveness because of a genuine love of God and a sorrow that you've broken the relationship with God is evidence of new birth, of spiritual life. And the third evidence of new birth is the love for others. Look at 1 John 5, 1 again. Everyone who believes, 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. In other words, if you truly love God, you're going to love other Christians. You're going to love those that are born of God. Those, right, that are within the family of God. Other Christians. Again, the Gospel of John 3.8 says, The wind, the spirit, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. You only see the effects. So is it. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And the effects of being born again, born of the Spirit, according to 1 John, are three. Belief in Jesus, the biblical Jesus. A love for the Father that leads to a desire to be obedient. And a genuine love for other believers. Now look at 1 John 5.20. And we know, verse 20, 1 John 5, verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Do you hear that? The Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Isaiah 44 tells us because of our idolatry, or, uh, idolatry, our false worship, it's led to a lack of understanding. 1 John 5.20 says, The Son of God has come and has given us understanding. In other words, this is a circumcision of the heart, the 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 changed heart from stone to flesh. This is new life, the new birth. Why has he given us understanding? So that we may know him. So that we may have a relationship with him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Listen, we worship the true God the living God, who hears, who sees, and who acts. The living God who brings life. And so John ends with a warning, verse 21. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Idols that are dead, that are lifeless, that lead to death, that lead to destruction. I want to end with some application points. I know this has been a long sermon, but I think it's important. 
there is some great application that comes from this. The first point of application is this. We are called to preach the gospel to dead, dry bones. We are called to preach the gospel to dead, dry bones. The Bible is clear. People that aren't born again, that means people that aren't Christians, are spiritually dead with no ability within themselves to hear us. Yet we're still called to share the gospel. Isaiah was called to prophesy even though Israel was deaf. Even though Israel was blind, couldn't see, couldn't hear. Even though God promised they wouldn't listen, he was still called to prophesy. Ezekiel was called to prophesy to dead, dry bones, literally. And both accomplished God's purposes. Isaiah's prophecy further, further hardened Israel's heart. Ezekiel's prophecy was used to bring miraculous spiritual life. Our goal is not to save people. Let me be clear. Our goal is not to save people. Our goal is to share the gospel and leave the miraculous saving up to God. Second application point. All the glory goes to God for our salvation. All the glory goes to God for our salvation. We were dead. Dry, dead, bones, dead. We were saved because God acted. Jeremiah 31, I will, I will, I will, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on them. I will cleanse them. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Listen, our belief, our obedience our new life, everything is to the glory of God. He gets the glory, not us. The third application point, and this one's extremely important, worship is at the core of who we are. Worship is at the core of who we are. We think humans in general and most Christians, we think sin is something we do or obedience is something we do. Listen, sin and obedience are effects of heart worship. False worship brings out sin, causes sin. Godly worship brings forth obedience. Worship is at the core of who we are. We're trained in seminary. Anyone that comes in, we're always looking for idols or false worship. Whenever there's a problem within someone's life, it's because they're worshiping something other than God. Worship is at the core of we are, who we are. And idolatrous, just false worship brings death. Worship of the living God brings life. 1 John 5, 12, whoever has a son has life, spiritual life. Whoever does not have the son of God, in other words, they don't worship God, they worship something else because we are creatures that worship, does not have life. They're spiritually dead. Brings us to our fourth application point. Idolatry comes in all forms. 
Idolatry comes in all forms. Worshiping anything other than God is idolatry. Right? Success, job, money, popularity, right? man's opinion, sports, sex. Anything you worship or trust in for ultimate security and joy, other than the one true God, is idolatry. And that includes worshiping an unbiblical Jesus, like the Gnostics, who said Jesus was divine, but not fully human. He wasn't physical. He's an unbiblical Jesus. In other words, the doctrines surrounding Jesus are very important because if you worship an unbiblical Jesus, you are worshiping a false god. And that's why John says, be careful of idolatry. Listen, we can fall into idolatry, and we do fall into idolatry daily. But a true born-again Christian will not stay there, stay there because their hearts have been changed to desire God. They will repent and turn and, and follow God and worship God, and that's evidence of a new heart. Worship of God brings life. Worship of anything else other than God brings destruction. And that includes Christians. When we take our eyes off God and worship something other than God, we find destruction. We find marriages in in shrambles. We find people in sorrows. There's only one thing that will bring true, ultimate, lasting security and joy, and that is worship of the one true God, nothing else. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, Lord, I know this is a a heavy message this morning, Lord, and, and my heart's been heavy all week, Lord. God, I just know what you think of idolatry, Lord. And I, and I know because you love us, Lord, is how much you hate idolatry because of the pain and suffering false worship brings into our lives, Lord. I hear John at the end of the letter as a pastor, as an apostle, writing to people he loves. He tells them, little children, you that I love, listen, please stay away from idolatry because it brings death, Lord. I pray if there's anyone in this room, Lord, that is seeking joy, and satisfaction, ultimately, Lord, in something other than you, Lord. It's okay to enjoy things. It's okay to, to, to put worth in things, but not ultimately, Lord. Only our true joy comes from you. God, I pray that they turn and turn to you, Lord. Help us to be a church that's known for just a passionate love for you. That faith, that, that, that the more we get to know you, the more our relationship grows with you, the more joy we find, Lord. Help us to know that as a church. And I pray that that is a witness, Lord, to our community. I pray when someone Google searches Country Oaks, why are Christians, that, that what will pop up is, are so joy-filled. Because we're worshiping the one thing that will bring joy, and that's you, Lord. Help us with that. In your son's name, amen.